Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Laura Numeroff. You may not have had a child that if you've never heard of her book, if you give a mouse a cookie, and she sold over four and a half million copies worldwide, been invited to the White House not once but twice, and even received two Emmy nominations for the adaptation of her book to a TV series. Laura is also heavily involved with It Takes a Village Project, which we'll get to in a little bit later in the show. Laura is super accomplished and is also a very down-to-earth person that I'm excited to have on. So let's get to it. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. We're fellow Brooklynites. Well, let's let, let's start there because we have a few a few more similarities. Um, both my parents are born and raised in Brooklyn. My parents are born and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, my dad went to Pratt as well. My dad is an artist. He's a fine artist. He's an art teacher. He. My dad's an artist, and he went to Cooper Union. It's a very small world. So I I grew up wow. in 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 a artistic home, um, like like you did. We have all these similarities here, and I'd love yeah. to hear you know. You, you had artistic parents. What was it like growing up uh, back then, back in the day? <laughs> I loved it. I had a rather, I would say, idyllic childhood. Um, my mom was a home economics teacher, but her cooking sucked. <laughs> even <laughs> Go even ha- she even screwed up hamburgers, like just a plain old hamburger. Um, my dad was an artist. He was the art director at the World Telegram and Sun, which was one of the major newspapers aside from the Times and the Post. And he had a studio down in the basement, his art studio, where he would go down at night and draw. And I would go downstairs and draw with him. And he brought home lots of pencils and pap- paper from the newspaper. I have two older sisters. And my house was filled with books. We had a piano. My dad and I used to play duets. Uh, reading it. was super important. Um, I used to go to the library with my dad all the time. And we played, and I'm sure you did. Well, I don't know how, for the same age, I'm probably older, but <laughs> we played in the streets. We played in the streets and we played in the schoolyards. It was before phones, right? No camera phones, no location tracking. They let us yeah. out in the in the morning and say, "Come home by dusk." Yes, and uh, it was great. It was a very mixed so, neighborhood, you know, Italian, Jewish. You know, it's interesting, and and I and I've talked about it with friends before. You know, you and I were talking offline about some of these core. I, I moved from. 
Long Island, from Brooklyn to Long Island when I was 12. And one of the things that, that you really learn quickly growing up in Brooklyn, you're, you're living in a melting pot. You really are versus yes. coming out here to Long Island where 90% of the kids look the same. Um, I grew up with everything, every different color, religion, race. I mean, that was, was like in Brooklyn. And I think that kind of adds to my, to my, my core of acceptance and, and understanding and be able to be a chameleon within groups. But I wanted to ask you about growing up in an artistic household, Laura. Did you think looking back on it now, because you started at such a young age that it gave you the, the confidence in your creativity versus people who kind of tap into that creativity later on in life? Actually, for just one second, I want to go back to the diversity. Go for it. My mom taught in a lower income neighborhood. So kindergarten, first and second grade, I went to school with her. And I was a minority in in my classroom. And then in third grade, they changed her school to just a junior high school. And I had to go to the local school. And it was kind of like Long Island. It's <laughs> tough. <laughs> but my specific neighborhood had a lot of uh, a mix. Anyway, so growing up in artistic, they were very encouraging. And when I was eight years old, I knew it wasn't that I wanted to be, oh, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I knew that I was going to be a children's author and illustrator. How did, how did you know that at eight years old? How did you have that awareness and foresight? That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked that. I mean, it's I a logical follow-up question. Yes, <laughs> it was. It was just in me. It was innate. I mean, I, I read so many books, and they got me so excited about using my imagination and coming up with stories. And a lot of people who are successful knew what they wanted to do when they were eight or nine. It's interesting you say that. And I think there's two parts that I want to I want to unpack a little bit. One of them is, you know, I, I look at the the books that my kids write. I have a, a five year old and almost five year old and almost 11 year old. And last night I was reading a book that my daughter wrote probably at six or seven years old to my son at five. <laughs> and while the obviously the, the the penmanship and the and the and the the understanding grasp of the English language are, are, are an evolution and she's learning. The storytelling was there at that age. There was a cute little story there. It had the beginning, the middle, oh. the end. Um, uh -huh. and, and I think about that too. How advanced were your stories at, at eight years old where you just felt confident that this was going to be your future? I mean, also, did, did you kind of have a, a, a vibe going towards the fashion side? That didn't come later until I was 15 because oh, my, my, my older sisters are 10 and 12 years older than I am. And my... Uh, middle sister emily went to pratt to be a fashion designer so when i was 15 i kind of dropped the idea of writing children's books and wanted to be a fashion designer to be like emily but when i got to pratt in the fashion department i hated it i couldn't sew it just wasn't anything i really was interested in so i ended up the second year, non-matriculating, just taking classes. And then my school had something called University Without Walls, and you were assigned a counselor. And so you could – I had an overall uh, subject uh, name, communications. 
So I took classes and things that I was interested in. I got internships at the only jazz station in in New York. I interned with a Sesame Street animator. I had my own radio show, jazz radio show at the school. That's pretty cool. And then, yeah, a bunch of us went to France for six weeks and got credit for all kinds of subjects. And then my last semester, I was short two studio credits. And I thought I would take Tai Chi, but I ended up going to Parsons and looking through their, no, SVAs, Parsons, Parsons, uh, looking through their catalog to find something easy. And I saw writing and illustrating children's books. And I took it in 1975 and we had a homework assignment to write and illustrate our own book. So I did a book called Amy for short about the tallest girl in the third grade. Um, (laughs) Teacher seemed to like it. And I had an illustration portfolio. So I made appointments with publishers to see the art director. And I just, Oh, I just happened to have my dummy. They call uh, a mock-up of a children's book. And on my fifth interview, the art director showed it to the editor and they bought it. So I got a contract for my first book before I graduated college from Macmillan. But there was a, and that was, a $500 there was a lot before advanced. <laughs> but there was tough times before that, right? I mean, the, the list, we were doing our research, um, working in an ice cream shop, a typist. But the one that kind of jumped out to me was Private Investigator. Do you have any funny stories the, from your time hard, as, a, as, a, as a PI? The hard, well, the hard times came out once I graduated because my parents weren't supporting me. Um, and yes, I, I was being published, but I wasn't making money and I wasn't, you know, selling that many books. So I had a lot of part-time jobs or, and then, um, two years after I graduated Pratt Institute, my girlfriend and I, I flew to Ohio, picked up my best friend and we took the Greyhound bus to San Francisco for two weeks. And I ended up staying for seven years. So I had a lot of part-time jobs out there, and I met a detective. I dated a detective. Um, it didn't work out. Mm. I ended up being the having a boyfriend who wrote the song "Sister Christian" from Night Ranger, and um, the detective knew that I needed money, so he called me and asked if I wanted to do some freelance work. So <laughs> I, I, I had. Some- we had to follow somebody whose boyfriend claimed she was having an affair Uh and I had some recon work. I had a Dodge Omni and she drove a Mercedes sports car. Um, But we made, yeah, we, uh, we lost her because she took off so fast. But um, so I called my friend and said, what do I do? He said, well, wait in the parking lot where they were, had left their car. And, then follow him home. So we waited until ah, she got back. There you and go. yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> we followed him home and got his address. And yes, she was having an affair. And then we went to Disneyland because we were in <laughs> Orange County. So, so, so speaking of Disneyland, I uh, love if you could share the origin story of, of, of the mouse. When, when did that first idea pop into your head? And so I had hear a little no, bit more I, how it, yeah, I did nine. I, I wrote and illustrated nine books. And then when I was with Kelly, the drummer, 
we would visit his parents in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, I, I get, I love car road trips, but you know, when you do the same one over and over again, you get a little bored. So when I talk to kids, I always say, how many of you have been on a long, boring car trip? Are we there yet? I have to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I want something to eat. Are we there yet? Too long. Too long. <laughs> except I was 27. And I started to think of funny things to make myself laugh. And I pictured a mouse nibbling on a cookie. And well, he'd want milk. And he'd need a straw. He'd want a napkin. So by the time we got to his parents' house, I had the whole story in my head. Wow. We came back to San Francisco and on my little funky typewriter with a wonky W, I typed it out. And this is in the old days of snail mail and sent it to try to get it published. Got nine rejections and a year later, Harper and Roe bought it. So what what was that? Do you remember the the feeling of rejection? I mean, how did back then, how did you manage it? Or was it just par for the course because you were trying to figure things out? It was par for the course. I mean, the first nine books I did were all rejected. Uh, I, n- I never sold a book on the first try. Um, and one thing I tell people who want to write anything, screenplays, books, children's books, you have to be able to deal with rejection. Otherwise you'll never make it. I mean, I have scabs of rejection letters. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think young creators these days are, is it, is it harder for them to handle rejection with all the social media and always on kind of world that we're living in versus back, you know, years ago before this technology was out? I'm, I am. So you had to wait for a letter, that, right? There was no email. Like there was no email saying you, exactly. you had to wait for it. You send something in, you had to wait for it. It took time yes. to come back. Yes. And Patience. now I can be rejected that Instantly. afternoon or the next day. <laughs> I do so, notice that kids get frustrated very easily and never want to do any rewriting. And they're always amazed when I tell them some of, some of my books, I, I've done 30 drafts. It's a process. Do you love do you love the process more than the finished product? Um, my favorite part is after I've written the first draft and I've got it down and I've come up with a beginning, middle, and an end, going back and working on it. You know, like what names do I really want to use? Because now, especially after I've sold it and I've you know it's a it's a relief. But then going back and fiddling with it, getting, you know, the thing about children's books is you can't ramble on and on and on like in a novel or nope. a memoir. You really have to keep it succinct. And I love coming up with just the right word, reading it out loud over and over and seeing exactly which word I want to use. How do you put yourself in the mindset? Because, you know, I, I always say when I'm talking to people about podcasting, you have to put yourself in the mindset of the audience. Are they having an enjoyable experience? Are they engage are they listening how do you put yourself in a mindset of a child who's actually reading this book i write for myself so if it makes me laugh it seems to yeah i i think it's i think being the youngest of three and growing up like that i've kind of maintained a childlike 
look at the world and act silly and have a silly imagination. Thank God. Always, I love it. And, and, and always kind of have that. And, and, and it's interesting when I think about my parenting style, um, it just comes naturally from the way my dad raised me. My dad was silly, doing voices, highly engaged, uh-huh. Uh-huh. playing, playful. And we always have music on in our house. We're very creative, yeah. we're always inspiring. And I think that's pretty critical um, to, to, to foster that creative environment for their kids. So there's exactly. a story that we dug up, and I'd love if you could share this one. Um, to make sure I have to keep me straight here. There's a story where a five-year-old producer wrecked the show for, that you were developing for two years with Disney, and it's it's odd for someone like me to really understand this, like in, in from a business sense. First of all, how is a five-year-old a producer, and and how did they wreck this show? Uh, I think what you're referring to is my friend and I came up with a uh, a show called Pea Brain and Bob, and they're two dogs that live on the Venice boardwalk in a rundown apartment building. Um, and their friends are live in the building. One is an out of work actor. One is a bodybuilder and just really funky kind of characters. And so we sold the show and we were working on it and we were having some problems and they brought in a producer who I, I refer to as being 12 years old, like haven't even, gotten bar mitzvah you know because i was in my 30s i guess at the time and he he comes in and this is so typical okay they're monkeys <laughs> and uh the and and, the, and he had drawings you know character sketches and the bodybuilder looked like kendall and and um the hippie uh candle seller willow that uh pea brain has a crush on you know, is voluptuous. <laughs> it, it was, it was exactly like that kind of nightmare situation. Um, so the, they did a little, I forgot what they call it, but they do a short um, animation of it and then they test it and it tested very highly. But mm. the guy who bought the show left and the new guy came in and just didn't want to do anything that was already in the works just in case it was a failure he would get credit for it yeah Hey there, fellow podcast listeners. I'm Kevin Logan Jr., host of the Immutable Mindset Podcast. If you're fascinated by Web3, blockchain, and disruptive technology, then you won't want to miss a show. Join me and co-host Adam Posner as we introduce you to an incredible lineup of successful entrepreneurs, builders, and industry veterans who share their insider knowledge, unique perspectives, and personal stories that will leave you inspired and craving more. Like Mike Isogawa, the CEO of Webacy, who shares her journey from being a Cirque du Soleil performer to a cybersecurity pioneer. Or Dave Schwed, COO of Halborn, who discusses the future of digital asset security and how the future of assets will be tokenized. We also break down complex topics into digestible bits, perfect for both experts and newcomers to the world of Web3. So if you're ready to stay ahead of the curve, subscribe to the Immutable Mindset Podcast now, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So let's, let's switch gears for a little bit. I mean, you, you've had incredible success as an author. You've been invited to the White House multiple times, selling millions of copies, being Emmy nominated. Is there any particular like milestone that really resonates with you as far as like that you made it from an accomplishment perspective? Uh, There are several instances. Harrison Ford used if you give a mouse a cookie and Air Force One. Um, And I actually ran into him. I live in Los Angeles and Brentwood, 
and I saw him at Starbucks and I introduced myself and he was very, very nice. And he said it was his idea. That's um, incredible. Yeah. Having Michelle Obama and her daughters reading, if you give a mouse a cookie at the white house. But for me, I know it sounds corny, but the best moment is, you know, I, you were talking about It Takes a Village and Amy. So I got involved with a foundation called It Takes a Village. I got a phone call out of the blue from, uh, that's my assistant. <laughs> I got a phone call out of the blue from um, Julie Arco, who works with uh, It Takes a Village, asking if I wanted to read to a class in Malawi. And I had been doing Zooms a lot through the last couple of years. And I said, yes, so great. So this little group of kids from Malawi, one little girl, I found, I found in love with her. She just kept asking that she would ask her question and then go take her seat somewhere else and then <laughs> come back and ask another. She had a lot of questions. And her last question was, um, how do I become an author? And my, my uh, go-to answer is, oh, you really have to read a lot of books. Reading books is very important. But as I was about to say that, I realized that these kids don't have any books. And it broke my heart. And they, mm. were, they were the best group of children. They were so, I held up, uh, yes, and I, I collect things like this. And they would go, ooh, and they got so excited about everything. And they were just so charming and sweet. And I looked, uh, I looked a little bit more at their website. And I decided to open a library for them at their school. And we all went in October. And they painted covers of my books on the walls in the library. That's incredible. So talk a little uh, bit more about the organization and, and, the, and the cause behind it and what the, what the mission is. So Tyler Clark, who's based out of uh, Utah, saw a need for kids who live in Africa, Nepal, and Mexico needing libraries. And he started uh, Village Book Builders, which is now they changed it to It Takes a Village. And his goal was to open 100 libraries. They've opened, um, I think they're up to 17. And I'm really lucky that I opened uh, I was able to do mine in October because now the prices have doubled because of price raising uh, for materials. So I just had a gala, which is how I, well, Amy uh, helped us um, to raise funds for another library. That's my goal. It's another, at least another library or two in Malawi. That's, that's incredible. And, and how do they, um, populate the books is, is it new books is there could folks donate so books? each I mean, each each library comes with a thousand books 10 laptops and a lot a full-time librarian uh it's also the library is also open to the community not just the school at the opening ceremony there were a thousand people there that's uh, the trip was the most amazing experience i've ever had 
Let's let's talk about that for a moment there because I'm I'm going a little um you know off course and I think about the library in my community and I think about um when I was young right so when I was young this was before the internet I mean I'm I'm 44 to give everyone a reference point out there so I learned how to type on a typewriter in elementary school in Brooklyn mm-hmm. I learned to do research in the library using the Dewey Decimal cards and researching and using encyclopedias and the library really was a destination for learning obviously technology advances and now we have all these resources and tools in the palm of our hand. But I still take my little guy over to the library and it's still a community center. It's still a place to learn. And the 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 there's a huge difference between holding a book in your hand and reading it on a screen in my in my opinion. Are you are you scared that one day books are gonna be, you know, extinct? Like how do we how do we keep the the vibe of real reading in, in you know alive? I I I worried about that for a while back but um, back then, but I don't think they'll ever become extinct. I think there are too many people who feel like you and I do that. There's nothing better than I love, love reading. I mean, I read at least two hours every night, sometimes three or four. And there's, I don't ever read on, on an iPad. Um, I can't, I physically can't. It hurts my eyes. Oh, (laughs) I and just, I like to hold it, right? I like to crack the spine. I like to hold a book. I like to get into it. Like if you're on a couch, if you're on a plane, wherever you are, getting comfortable and you're at one with, with the book. Yes. Each each book that I it. buy, yes, or take out a library, it feels like a gift. It's, it's a very tactile. I love the cover. I love touching it. I love opening it and looking, you know, at the blurb about the author and what I love about books is sometimes I have to go back and look at something that I missed, might have missed or want to reread. And I don't want to, you know, be doing that. Just scrolling, just scrolling yeah. through it. Well, so it's interesting. I, I, Let's talk about. Yeah, I just don't think that they'll ever, especially children's books. Right. You're not going to stick your iPad. And I mean, we tried it early on with my daughter, who's older, with some of like the Disney books online. It's not the same. For me, there's no. nothing better when I re- when I read a book to my son Oliver every night. He sits in my lap, and I put the book in front of us together. Right? You can't you can't do that. You're not going to replace that. I love the name Oliver. I had a horse named Oliver, and <laughs> the boy in the If You Give a Mouse a Cookie show is Oliver. Oh, I can't wait for him to to get that in from. Um, so it's interesting, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about this now. The creative process, as as you're a writer and an illustrator. The, the thought from a creative standpoint and a marketing standpoint from the cover design. Let's talk about cover design, the importance of that. Because, right, you want to tell the story, but it's also, hey, this is an ad. People look at the titles. They're looking at the, at the, the covers. What's the thought process that goes into designing a cover for a children's book? Um, sometimes I would take an illustration from the book. And maybe just skew it a little bit to to put on the cover. But I always try to make it fun and funny if possible. The first book, Amy for short, that I wrote, she's so tall. Her best friend is the tallest boy in the third grade. So for Halloween, he goes as the Empire State Building and she goes as a tree because people always call her treetops. So the cover of the book, I have the illustration where she's a tree for Halloween. Um, it's it's just, it's 
it's scary doing the cover because you know how many people are going to be looking at it and are they going to pick it up and look through it or put it down? Do you, do you test the market? No. Do you use, use like focus groups or you just put it out there and go with it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you, you know, kinda... I'll be, obviously I'm working with an art director. And so if I do something that's not quite marketable, you know, I'll, I'll work on it. Yeah, you got you got to make it marketable. So, so let me ask you this question. So, what's your take on celebrity celebrities doing children's books? Jimmy Fallon, I've seen a bunch of these. Is it like Kevin Hart did them? Are they just trying to capitalize on their celebrity? I mean, a lot. Of, let's be careful. A lot of them do it for charity, where 100 percent of the proceeds go to charity. I'm kind of all for that too. But like, is it kind of like a cheat code? Like, hey, listen, of course someone's going to pick up the book. Is it Jimmy Fallon's putting a kids book out? People think Jimmy Fallon's funny. Like versus the 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 author that's been doing this for their entire career for 10, 20, 30 years. What, what's your what's your what's your take on that, Laura? Um, <clears throat> well, so what I've been told by booksellers is that celebrity books sell a lot at first when they first come out because of the celebrity factor, the wow, the star factor. But most of them don't stay around. Uh, there happen to be a couple of uh, celebrities who actually are good writers. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis being one of them. But, uh, I was nominated for what was called the Quill Award. And it was this Oscar of children's books, or of books, not just children's books. And at my table, also nominated, uh, who had a book with my publisher, was Gloria Estefan. Wow. And it was kind of, it's like, I felt like she was infiltrating the uh -oh. market. Uh, I won, but... <laughs> Did you give her a look? Did you give her like a look back afterwards and be like, I know what I'm doing here. Yeah. That's, that's, that's Sorry, Gloria. Sorry, get back. Stick with the stick with the get music. Back to the beat. Yeah, back exactly. To the beat. So, so I, you know, be, being a creative takes a lot of mental horsepower. But there's times when we have our our writer's blocks. What What's your process working through a writer block? What would you share with my audience? So I've written forty seven books and uh, illustrated nine of them. I've been doing it since nineteen seventy five. And I have definitely had major, major writer's block through COVID. Uh, I, I did end up writing a couple of books in the last couple of years that um, still haven't been able to sell. But sometimes when I get writer's block, I instead of trying to think harder or work harder on it, I put it aside and I go, I either do something else completely or I start work on another book. But sometimes you can't push yourself too hard because you just, it, it, it's like you can hit a wall. And there are some ideas that, that just don't work. You have to like know when it's time to yeah move on. That, how, how do you know if an, if an idea is not a good idea? You just feel it like after all this experience, you just know, like I had an idea, I worked it through, we workshopped it, I got it down on paper and it just kind of hit a dead end. 
my my if I can't come up with a really good so all children's books have a beginning, middle, and an end. Most of them, ninety percent of them, and the middle is like uh oh. And if I can't come up with a good uh oh and an end, then I know the idea is just it's not going to work. Uh, that's the most mm. important part. They're really hard to write. You know, people look at a children's book and I get it. There's 27 pages. Most of it's pictures. Some books have no words. Some books have very few words. I mean, Mouse Cookie doesn't have a lot of words. But like I said before, you don't have a lot of time to get in there, get a kid's attention, make them want to read the story and find out what happens. You have to hook them early. I mean, believe me, I sit there with my kid and there are some bad children's books. And 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 yep. sometimes sometimes he, I could see he gets it right away and those books go in the back of the shelf. We never look at them. Then we have the ones he always wants to read. And out of the mm-hmm. ones he wants to read all the time, some of them are just fantastic, great classic stories. Some of them are more the 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 funny, the dinosaur um the dinosaur voice ones. And some of them are like the, the Peppa Pig adaptations, which are great storytelling as well too. And then we go to the classics. We go to all the, our Carlisle's, we go to all those classics and they're classics for a reason mm-hmm. because they're great storytelling and they're simple and they're not overly wordy. And I found that these kids get lost when they, and, and you're also trying to teach them to read. So if you're sticking a paragraph in front of them with, with tons of words, that's not digestible for them too. You also have to think about the educational development, right? Yes. I, Actually, I said yes too quick. Sorry. I lied. Yes and no. I don't ever really write. Most of my books I've never written actually for an educational experience, but just just more more for their learning experience. Learning, yes. But um, I did, I don't know if you're familiar, I have a book called Raising a Hero. And uh, I had, okay, so. I'm going to be 70 in July and years, a couple of years ago, I needed help with my website. So my friend has a mommy group and she found a a young guy to come and help me with it. So it ended up that Sean had a brother in a, with cerebral palsy who used to service dog. And I've always been fascinated. Long story short, I ended up writing a story about a little boy raising a puppy to become a service dog. Hmm. And we raised money with a Kickstarter. And it's now has 95 five-star reviews on Amazon. Um, I've met so many puppy raisers and pups and people who use the dogs and a portion of the royalties go to Canine Companions, which is the largest nonprofit organization that raises service dogs across the United States. And they give them to people who need them, including vets with PTSD, people who are deaf, uh, people with cerebral palsy, autism, Downs, the whole, spe- uh, the whole, all of those disabilities. For free, right. but there is like a two-year waiting list. And I also did a book, um, well, 25, 20, yeah, 25 years ago. I got a phone call from Sprint out of the blue, and they said, uh, we want to write a 
we want a book for kids about breast cancer for the month of October. Hmm. Um, would you be willing to write it? And I, yes, I'm very honored. And I hung up the phone. And then I realized I'd, I'd never written nonfiction. And luckily, I don't have any experience with breast cancer. So I called them back and I said, I don't know if I'm the right person. And they said, well, we'll, Matt, we'll fix you up with a doctor who's a survivor and has written a book about it. So she was out of Houston, and we came up with a little group called the Hope Tree. And it's, she gave me 10 points that kids could deal with and should know about. Like, it's not contagious. My mom's right. going to be wearing, my aunt, my sister's going to be wearing hats or wigs. And then what I did was I wrote something about each point from a child's point of view. So it's not contagious. My mom said that you can't catch breast cancer. It's just like somebody has a broken arm. You can't catch a broken arm. Lily, age eight. And then we got an illustrator, one of my favorite illustrators. They printed it, print, printed it in paperback. And it was uh, distributed to wellness centers. I did a little bit of a book tour. It was featured on Oprah. The doctor was on Oprah. And then at the end of October, mm-hmm. I ended up um, getting it published in hardcover by Simon and Schuster. And all the all the money from the book, from me, the doctor, and the artist, went to Susan Coleman. That's 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 tremendous. And correct correct me if I'm wrong. You don't you don't have any kids of your own, correct? No, I love being around them, and I love going home. <laughs> I, I was I was just about to say, like, it, it, you don't you don't have to have kids to be able to relate to kids. Thank you to be able to speak to them, and it gives it gives that unique, very unique perspective there. Um, and I absolutely applaud it here. So, Laura, let's bring it home. It's been a fantastic conversation, and um, we'll link everybody up to the books, and you'll be able to check it all out. Great. We're also going to link it up to um, uh, uh, joint. Uh, to takes a village organization. Um, but this is my masterclass and I share it over the course of 273 episodes and I get to speak to incredible folks like yourself. So I'd love to ask Laura, what, what is, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you have ever received that you take action on every day of your life? Never give mantra, up. Something you would- Never give up. I, you know, I tell that to every class I visit because what if I'm that ninth rejection of if you give a mouse a cookie, I gave up. What if? There wouldn't be a library in Malawi. It's tough. It's tough and, and, and be able to handle in the, in the face of rejection and, and keep going. And I always tell my kids this. Keep going. Like, just keep trying. Don't give up. They get frustrated. Don't give up. Fantastic advice. And Laura, last but not least, you look back on your life and your career. And there were those tough times, those times when you were struggling. You were pulling yourself up. And in those moments, we had to look back and dig down deep and harness that inner tenacity to drive you forward. And in the same breath, you sit here with gratitude for the life that you have, for all the lives that you've changed. I mean, sharing the stories of building and changing lives in Malawi, writing the book for for children, you know, uh, families of breast cancer. What keeps you focused? What is your beacon? Laura Numeroff, what is your North Star in life? My passion is, uh, I also sponsor a horse for therapeutic riding. So my passion is for kids with disabilities or poverty, in poverty. That keeps me going. That's my, yeah. 
passion, purpose, creativity. Laura, I want to thank you so much for joining me and my audience today. Um, hang with me you. for one moment here. I want everyone to check out um, www.joinourvillage.org and see how you could help. It takes a village to educate, empower, and inspire kids all over the world. I'm going to link that up in the comments. We'll link up to Laura's website for books. Definitely check it out, Laura. Thank you again. Hang with me for one moment here. It's been a pleasure. And to everyone listening at home, thank you for joining us on the podcast. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon. Jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>